the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Great to be together. Uh, Another big show. In a few moments, we'll talk with a very interesting Catholic uh, priest, uh, Father Bouquet, uh, Bouquet, his name is, the importance of the pro-life movement is his topic. We'll talk to him. And then later on, we'll talk about Johns Hopkins University is doing trials, is doing trials. Uh, and we'll hear about what the prog, what the pro, uh, what the prognosis is, uh, for these, um, trials and uh and we'll see what that means all right well that'll be an interesting uh topic to take up but first what you need to know what you need to know the first thing you do and let me remind you those um uh the um uh checking the blood it's the blood pa- i'm sorry i'm checking the blood plasma trials is the ones that is checking on uh, covid so we'll hear about that uh in a few moments uh but first what you need to know let me get to this uh, this is so in- interesting to me it's going to be so interesting to watch i have predicted not predicted i've described to you for many many months that the civil war going on in the parties is not in the republican party although there is about a hundred never trumpers who've gathered themselves together in one ridiculous non uh, a political action committee called the Lincoln project the project they're making money off of it I mean they're all making money they're getting paid as consultants and all but there's only about a hundred people the Republican Party is Trump's party 97 percent of Republicans say they support the president it's unheard of it's unheard of. There's no defection amongst Republicans. When you hear the New York Times say, and there's an our big article, evangelical Christians do not support. They're united in, in lack of support of President Trump. They're the same ones that were against him in the past. That's like saying Jewish voters are against the president. There's lots of people who describe themselves as a certain position. They may be. But, you know, uh, I would say conservative Christians, people that actually take their faith in, in, in what I would say a conservative way. They're for Trump. They're not. There's not. There's not a lot of distance there. But be that as it may. Back to my point. The real problem in the political parties is a problem of the uh, of the Democrat Party because the Democrat Party is experiencing this battle, and it came. It broke out into the open in the last 24 hours when the Democrats began attacking 87 year old Senator Dianne Feinstein, who is the ranking member on the Judiciary Committee in the U.S. Senate, and they're attacking her for not being sufficient tough on Amy Coney Barrett and being too nice to people or whatever it is. I'm not really sure the specifics, but here's the thing you need to know. When she was attacked by the Democrats, Chuck Schumer was asked about it. And what did he do? He didn't defend her. He did not defend her. He said, well, we'll see what happens in the next Senate. We'll see what happens. Now, the Democrats, a lot of them are dreaming that they're going to get control of the Senate. So they think that they're going to uh, you know, have, have control over this. But we'll see what happens. Uh, but more importantly, she's one of the longstanding Democrats and she's being run out of town. 
she's being uh, told that she can't have her positions, that she's not sufficiently strong enough on these issues. This is an interesting problem. This is an interesting uh, moment, because if it's true that uh, Dianne Feinstein is going to be pushed out by the Democrats, you're seeing a changing of the guard. Now, she's no, by the way, she's no moderate. She's not a moderate on anything. She's the one that attacked Coney Barrett for uh, for his uh, for her uh, Coney Barrett's faith. You know, she's not. There's not. Feinstein is not a moderate. Uh, California, but she's not sufficiently militant. She's not sufficiently unpleasant and unfriendly. She was seen hugging Lindsey Graham after the uh, Amy Coney Barrett thing. Now. Two things you need to know. One, remember, it's a civil war. And after this election, when uh, Biden loses, you're going to see an absolute civil war bloodletting. They're going to go after all these. You're going to see AOC ascend and Bernie Sanders types ascend and all that. Number two, this attack on Feinstein is an acknowledgement that they are losing on Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, and so it's uh, it is it's um, it is that's another part of this, because an announcement came out earlier today or maybe I don't know if it was publicly announced, but I know it to be true that they're going to confirm Amy, Amy Coney Barrett on the 26th uh, of October in just five days and she'll be on the Supreme Court. So what an extraordinary turn of events in this um, in this country as we watch this sort of uh, breaking out of this battle in the Democrat Party and the civil wars going on there. So that's what you need to know on that. All right. Number two on this um, debate prep. I, I talked on a periscope earlier. I, I don't know, in the last uh, 12 or 15 hours, I did a periscope. You know, I do two a day. I do one periscope at uh, just before 7 a.m. Uh, Pacific time at, uh, I guess it's 945 East Coast time every morning. I do it the wink in the morning, what you need to know in the morning. And then in the afternoon at, uh, well, not just before noon, 11 o'clock Pacific time, 2 o'clock East Coast time, another one. About 10 or 15 minutes each time, update you on what you need to know. And earlier today, I was talking about debate prep, debate prep. Understand that what's happened with the debate, pre- the, the, the presidential debate, how they've changed the rules. They've actually, I think, advantaged Trump because for the two minutes where they can't interrupt, Trump is just going to unload on Biden. And that's going to be typical Trump. He's not going to care. You know, the only by the way, the mics are only muted for the two minute uh, kind of answer to the question, not for the rest of the free for all. So you're still going to get talking over each other and yelping. But if you recall, Biden doesn't isn't able to talk over except to say shut up and, you know, to call him names. But here's the other wrinkle. Do you remember how uh, Biden stumbled and struggled with the set pieces in the debates in, uh, in with the Democrats. Remember, at least twice I can think of, as he delivered his prepared remarks, he got lost and he finished early. Now, if you know anything about debating, if you've ever debated, especially in politics, if they tell you the ground rules are you get a three-minute opening statement, two-minute opening statement, five-minute opening, whatever it is, you practice to fill that space. You don't give up any of that real estate. You know, you take the whole five minutes or the whole three minutes. And at least twice, Biden got himself confused and stumbled. And here's my prediction. What I'm going to call the hashtag Biden slide, the Biden fade. He's fading now. He's sliding. The polls are tightening, they say, because they were lies. The numbers are going, uh, you know, in Trump's direction because they have been, uh, you know, the only metric that Joe Biden is doing better uh, against Trump is he's got about double the money. The problem is that Hillary Clinton had four times the money of Trump and didn't win. So you're seeing this this Biden fade, the Biden slide. But here's my prediction at the debate. Biden will be fine in most ways. He'll have prepared some set pieces. He'll deliver them okay. You know, he's done this for so many years. He'll be okay at it. 
But where he will slip up is one of these periods where he'll have a prepared set piece and he'll get lost. And he'll, he'll get lost and it won't be because of Trump's goading or Trump's interruptions that he will look, look lost. He'll just look lost and it will be sort of searing and, and it won't be obvious. You see, the debate uh, is set up now so that it won't be obvious for during the two minute uh, answers for the debate um, uh, coach. <laughs> I say coach, the moderator who's on Biden's side, you know, is to, to sort of save him. She'll have to leave him. And he'll stumble and it will be such a glaring uh, mess up that it will become the signature for Biden of the debate. So watch for that. That's my prediction. I think that was it seems very likely. I'd say it's 50 50. Maybe it's a little bit uh, less than that. But watch for that because I think that's a danger zone. All right. The last thing I want to tell you is uh, Operation Stars and Stripes got a huge response. Yesterday, I launched this. I said, hey. If you don't want to put a, 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 a sign up in your yard, a Trump sign, then don't. But put up an American flag. In fact, put up an American flag anyway. Every I just put one up at work. I put one up at home in my yard. Put up a sign and take a picture of it and post it on social media or send it to me. Let's get the people out there putting up sign, putting up uh, stars and stripes, the American flag, whatever size you have. Small ones, you know, 8 by 12 is the ones, little ones I have. There's some bigger ones I've seen. Put them up. And celebrate the great stars and stripes. It's a unifying image and it helps conservatives. People vote more conservatively when they see the flag. They just do. It's a known thing. It's a, it's a fact. And so that's my pitch to you is go ahead and do that and get yourself, um, get yourself a flag and get it out there and get people talking about the stars and stripes. So Operation Stars and Stripes already succeeding. Do me a favor again, if you take a picture or shoot a little video, give me a uh, shoot me a, an email of it. My email, my best email is ed at edmartinlive.com, ed at edmartinlive.com, ed at edmartinlive.com, or uh, on Twitter at Eagle Ed Martin, uh, or go to uh, proamericareport.com and ping through on the uh, contact sheet. You'll see it in there. So uh, I'll look forward to getting that, and let's get that going as much as we can. All right, we got again some great guests. A couple. It's kind of a religious day. I've got the I've got a rabbi on. I th- oh no, I've got a a, uh, a professor. I guess he's a Jewish professor, but I've also got a priest on. We're going to talk about so what's happening in this country, and uh, tomorrow we will talk with John Schlafly, the Schlafly Report. We'll visit with him. Don't forget, debate coverage starts at uh, 7.30 p.m. Pacific time, goes till 9 o'clock Pacific time, and the East Coast, that, of course, is 10.30 to midnight on Thursday after the debate. Tune in for that. All right, it's Ed Martin here in the Pro-America Report. Be right back. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer San Diego. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. You've all heard me talk a lot about how when I say the Pro-America Report and the Pro-America Movement, you know, pro-constitution, pro-family, but especially pro-life. And in the last uh, six months, as we've talked about the power of platforms in parties, you know, the Republican Party platform has a pro-life blank. The Democrat Party doesn't anymore. And the question of where the pro-life movement is, uh, I asked around to some friends. I said, you know, I want to talk to some folks about where the American pro-life movement is and there's an organization which I'm sure you've heard of. It's called Human Life International. Uh, it's been around for many years now. That uh, is leading uh, pro-life movement. And I'd say this, and, and Father uh, Shannon Bouquet will, will, will help us uh, hear it. He's our guest, but uh, a little bit better. But it's um, almost missionary work to be talking about the culture of life. And so, uh, first of all, welcome, Father. And uh, how are you? Tell us about the origins of Human Life International and kind of what the organization does, if you please. 
Well, absolutely, Ed, and thank you very much for having me on the program today, and hello to the audience today. Yeah, uh, Father Paul Marx was a uh, Benedictine priest who, uh, in 1972, uh, first began this great work, and uh, which was originally called, uh, worked primarily in the States, but in 1981, uh, he took the pro-life work and message uh, globally. And so since 1981, we have been working on the global scene and uh, the pro-life movement in many parts of the world that didn't even have a pro-life movement. So uh, HLI has been really privileged to, to, to really support local pro-life and family leaders uh, at very grassroots level, uh, working with dioceses, even civil leaders in different parts of the world, uh, to really cultivate a language uh, that supports a culture of life. And, you know, as our audience knows, uh, you know, culture flows downstream. So, I mean, and if we really look at that that phrase, uh, that simple phrase, if we can, you know, uh, further the conversation, uh, introduce the language, uh, teach people proper uh, uh, understanding of uh, the language of life and, and family, then it begins to flow. And so, and what I mean by that is we, we want to help people to know what it means to be a pro-life, pro-life. What does it mean to support a culture of life? How do you build it? So it's, it's been a privilege for myself. It's been uh, 10 years uh, uh, that I've been serving as the organization's president and uh, joyfully as a missionary, you know, uh, bringing that message. We work in over 100 countries. We've served in over 162. So we've had uh, a tremendous amount of experience in, in, in the issues of life and family. So uh, uh, our contribution in the States, really, Father Marks used to have these great conferences uh, that many of the pro-life leaders that we know today, uh, many of them began at uh, these conferences where they would gather to uh, to speak on the issues, address the issues, and uh, strategize on the issues. And uh, so we owe a great uh, great gratitude to people like Father Marks and like Nellie, Nellie Gray and uh, you know Joe Scheidler and many others who are those pioneers. We're talking again with uh, Father Shannon Bouquet, who's the president of uh, Human Life International, HLI.org, a great email address, a great uh, website address, by the way, Father, and there's a lot of uh, resources there. When you look out over the world and the pro-life movement, you see, you know, sort of clouds on the on the horizon, you know, China's policies, the atheist communist regime is certainly sort of anti-life broadly. You see cultural um, sort of anti-life movements in like Europe where you'd say, hey, People are not going to church in the same way, not even Catholic necessarily, but any church or even synagogues. And then America, you know, a lot of people have pessimism. They say, well, we're in a dark age. On the other hand, uh, folks like my old boss, the late Phyllis Schlafly, sounds like you, have a certain uh, sort of optimism of, of the joy of life and say, hey, things are going in the right direction, even if they feel dark. Is that right? I mean, do you feel, and people will say, oh, young people are more open to life than ever. What's the sort of uh, trend line here on the battle for the culture of life. Sure. I think it would be, you know, obviously uh, different continents, different cultures. Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, we, we know that the, the language of the culture of death uh, has been able to be spread wide and far because of the amount of money uh, that this industry has found uh, in support of, uh, you know, or NGOs, or foundations, and even, sadly, uh, the United States up until recently under the Trump administration, you know, we saw a lot of funding uh, flowing into many parts of the world to promote contraception, abortion. Uh, euthanasia, the whole issues of homosexuality. So we've seen this across the, the spectrum. 
despite all of that, what is always amazing to me is the hopefulness and the, the beauty of people across the globe, whether they be young, whether they be uh, older, but to see people awakening, you know, because they're seeing through the illusionary language, they see through the rhetoric, they realize, like we do here in the States, that when you ask, where is Planned Parenthood? Where does it usually find uh, its buildings being built? Well, of course, it's in, in lower income uh, neighborhoods and in black communities, Hispanic communities. You know, this is something that's waking people up, even on the, on the global scene, so you realize that it's it's not legal uh, in the country, let's say abortion, but yet you'll find organizations like uh, Marie Stopes International working there. Well, how is this organization working there? So people are becoming aware. They're becoming more alert. And we do see among young people uh, a, a very strong energy uh, that wants to address these issues. The difficulty, Ed, uh, is that our, sadly, much of our educational systems globally have been corrupted. And so many of our young people who are being propagandized the universities and colleges, you know, are not being uh, given opportunity uh, to be uh, introduced to the uh, perennial teaching on life and family. And so what they hear in their universities is the complete opposite. So sometimes our difficulties uh, really are with our young. But what I find when you confront it, when you address it, they only have so many talking points and they can't get beyond it. And that's where the, the strength is, because once you expose them to the full spectrum of the teaching, they, they most of the time will shatter, they crumble, and they realize they've been lied to. And now they become passionate pro-lifers in realizing you know, that they've been duped uh, into this uh, false uh, language, and, and now they want to work against it. So I, I, that gives me strength and hope. Uh, again, we're talking with uh, Father Shannon Bouquette uh, from uh, the Human Life International. It's hli.org, hli.org. All right, Father, I'd it'd be remiss if I didn't ask you in this kind of uh, heated time, right, where uh, Judge Amy Coney Barrett gets a ton of attention for her faith. Not only did she have five children of her own, but she adopted two more, and, and her faith is something clearly sort of uh, <laughs> at the heart of who she is. She doesn't hide that, and yet there's questions about that, and then the, we got this election. Um, you know, how do you navigate the the reality of, hey, you, you know, you've got to have political and, and public leaders who are pro-life, but you're trying to change the culture. You're trying to go upstream from that. So how have you have you found it harder? Do you find people that are uh, sort of angrier or upset that you're either not involved more in politics or you're too involved or how have you walked that line? It seems like a very difficult moment in this uh, in, in, in our nation, in our history. Amen. Yeah, I, I think that it's 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 a mix. I mean, uh, I've written uh, quite a bit uh, lately. Uh, you know, kind of trying to raise awareness of of the full spectrum of life issues, and and as a result, I, as you began, you know, uh, the, our, our conversation by looking at the two platforms that we see, both in the Republican platform and the Democrat platform, and there is obviously a very different view on the on, on life and family. And so when we start raising these issues up, I get letters saying, you know, you should shouldn't be involved in politics, you're getting too involved in this, or, you know, and then you get people who want you to go a lot further. You know, for myself and for HLI, like I know many of, of our, uh, especially the Catholic uh, pro-life and family uh, uh, organizations, really approach this from the teaching. What does the teaching say? Because the teaching is beyond the platform of any party. It, it's it's above it. it. It transcends it. So, but then as Pope Benedict XVI used to talk about that, you know, for myself, and that's why I admire, uh, you know, 
and Judge Barrett, because uh, one, she didn't run away, you know, from this conversation in the sense mm-hmm. of getting involved yeah. in the public life. She run, she ran toward it, and she allowed her the shaping of her of her education, the formation of her life, you know, all of this to be incorporated into her 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 contribution to civil society. And she's not afraid of it. She's not ashamed of it, and she's not ashamed of her mm-hmm. faith. And it's interesting that, you know, what's so sad is that we look at people, and with all respect, you know, uh, you know to, uh, that when you look at someone like Joe Biden who says that he's a Catholic in good standing, and, and we look at this and say, wait a minute, this makes no sense, and yet uh, Judge Barrett stands and obviously can attest to her Catholicity, show where her faith is and how she expresses it, but that's not the kind of Catholic they want in public office. They want someone yeah. that they can they can mold and shape in their own vision, and I think that's the the challenge that she brings. She stands in the in the midst of that and says, "I'm sorry, I am a Catholic, and this is what I hold true and believe." And we should not be afraid of that. And and I think that you know it's important for more people like Amy, uh, Judge Barrett, to become involved. We need solid, faithful, orthodox insightful, intelligent people to get into this conversation, not yeah. run away from the politic, but run toward it, not become absorbed by it, but to lead it, to, to bring light into it. And this is the problem today, you know, as people often call it the swamp, but I mean, it, it's so true, instead of entering into the swamp and becoming part of the swamp, how about you, you stay above it and, and, and clean it up? <laughs> right. Well, spoken like yeah. good Louisiana boy, you know how to do, yeah, yeah. you know how to navigate through these swamps. One of those, exactly. one of those. What do they call those boats? What are those boats that stay above the water? I've, I watch those, one those, of those shows those, on uh, those, air, those airboats. Those airboats. Yeah, the airboats. That's right. You should do a yeah. You should do a missionary thing like a missionary show on like airboats and kind of drain the swamp. You go in and like could be the image there. But all right, Father, I got to run. Uh, Father, appreciate it very much, and uh, I will put it up on social media. Hli.org. Find out more about the work they do and what's going on. Thanks very much for your time and uh, keep praying for America. We appreciate it very much. Uh, Father Shannon Boquette of the Human Life International. Uh, we got to take a quick break and be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer San Diego. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. You know, I've been looking forward to this discussion because I got an email uh, from, I think it was from Steve Brodsky at our um, our uh, station manager, and he said, you know, this is an interesting uh, test that's going on. Johns Hopkins University is undertaking um, both with the uh, cooperation of, I think, UC San Diego and then a few other UC places, one of the uh, tests to um, clinical trials on the blood, the convalescent blood plasma, which got a lot of attention when President Trump got the disease. There's talk about afterwards, you know, if you're if you've had the disease and you recover, is there a way that your blood plasma can be helpful for other people? So we've got as our next guest, uh, Dr. Shmuel Shoham of, of Assistant Professor of, Med- of Medicine over at Johns Hopkins, one of the top uh, medical institutions in the world. And uh, he's going to walk us through this. Welcome, sir. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for having me. So first of all, tell our listeners about what this could mean. And, you know, people say, oh, let's get a vaccine. I'm married to a doctor, doctor, so I know just enough to be dangerous. And she's an internal medicine doctor. So I do know things like we've never had a vaccine for coronavirus. We've never needed one because it hasn't been as deadly. But, you know, that could be a long way off. It could be up and down. But we've always developed therapeutic uh, treatments. And this is one of them. Walk us through what this blood plasma thing would be and why it's worth working and testing. 
great. So uh, uh, there's uh, two approaches to immunizing people. One is what's called active immunization. You put a product into somebody's body and then they start making antibodies. And the other one is called passive immunization, which is you take the antibodies that were already formed, whether it's formed in somebody else's body like plasma or whether it's made in the laboratory like monoclonal antibodies, and you protect the person with these preformed antibodies. Now, uh, it's important with things like coronavirus to operate on multiple tracks. So the vaccine production and uh, studies, those are going on. But at the same time, we're also working on the passive immunization strategy. uh, And uh, plasma is one of the things that we've been working on. So the concept is that somebody has an infection, they've survived the infection, they uh, uh, did it through uh, uh, the power of the body's natural healing ability. And then we can take what they have already done, their antibodies, um, and uh, give it to people that are struggling with the disease so that uh, hopefully we can uh, uh, prevent their progression and also people that have been exposed to the infection to hopefully prevent them from getting the infection in the first place. Uh, the concept has been used for uh, over 100 years, and we use it every single day with uh, different exposures, people that have been uh, exposed to a a dog that may have uh, rabies. Uh, In addition to getting the vaccine, they also get antibodies from people that have had a good response to the vaccine to protect them. So this is a a, a thing that's been done for a long time. And what we're doing is looking at it for uh, coronavirus and new disease, obviously. Uh, We have funding from uh, the Department of Defense because they uh, were very interested in this both for uh, civilian and military protective purposes and then also from uh, um, a variety of uh, other sources. We're doing it uh, at Johns Hopkins uh, in Baltimore. We're doing it at a community hospital called Anne Arundel Hospital just uh, outside of Baltimore and Annapolis and then all the way across the country at uh, university settings uh, and uh, in the Navajo Nation and including at University of California, San Diego. And and we're, so we're we're talking with uh, Dr. Shoham of uh, Johns Hopkins University. He's associate professor of medicine. His expertise is in infectious management, uh, infectious disease, all around this uh, this topic. So what's the goal? It, it, you know, for the listener out there, you say we've all been hearing. Okay, if you're senior, you're in a you you higher risk. If you have uh if you have uh, diabetes or some comorbidities, you're at higher risk. So people are nervous. If this kind of testing will it take three months, six months, a year, and when you're done? Will it be the kind of thing that someone says, hey, this can be helpful for um, when you get sick or is it before you get sick? What's the likelihood? I know you can't guarantee it, but what's the sort of timeline on this kind of effort? Um, So finishing uh, up your question, the goal is to find out if convalescent plasma, plasma from survivors, is effective as a way of preventing infection in people that have had a high exposure and in preventing progression to hospitalization in people that uh, have uh, been infected but aren't as sick yet. And some of the use scenarios that you mentioned, an older person who's at risk for uh, horrible complications, that would be a perfect person if this is effective to both prevent an infection and if they already came down with the infection to prevent them from getting sicker. How long does it take to do such a trial? So the... the, uh, the, the, the trial is, uh, the goal is to show that there is a difference, if one exists, 
between regular plasma, plasma that does not have antibodies, uh, and plasma from people that have survived mm. that uh, has high antibody uh, antibodies. So what we do is it's called a randomized control trial. So uh, people that uh, volunteer to participate in this then receive uh, uh, either regular plasma or convalescent plasma. We don't know what they're getting. They don't know what they're getting. The blood bank knows, but they're not telling. And uh, <laughs> right. uh, and then and then we give them the, the, the product as a single infusion and uh, then follow them for a 90-day period and uh, keep close track as to what happens to them. At the uh, end of uh, the 90-day period for them, we have all the information as to uh, whether they got sick or not, if uh, uh, they developed good uh, protection uh, during that period of time, the uh, antibody. And then when we put all the different sub uh, people that have uh, uh, been a part of the study together, then we look at uh, group A, the ones that got the uh, convalescent plasma versus group B, the ones that uh, got the uh, uh, control plasma, and see if there's a difference. If uh, the people that are in group A were more protected than the people that were in group B, and if that is the case, then our entire goal is to uh, let people know what works and what doesn't, and then hand that over to uh, the regulators like the FDA to uh, uh, patients uh, and their families and to doctors so that people can make the best decisions as to what to put into their body as to uh, whether something is protective or not. How long is it going to take us to find out? Uh, it all depends on how many people we get quickly as we can into the trials. So uh, we're looking for 500 people in the post-exposure prophylaxis study. 250 will get uh, the uh, uh, the plasma with uh, the high antibodies. 250 will get the control plasma, regular plasma, um, and, uh, and then we can see the difference. It's possible that we may not even need all 500 because if the product is just crushing it, then probably fewer people are going to be needed to be able to show a difference that isn't just by chance alone, like a real difference. Uh, on the other hand, if um, uh, people are uh, are going to meet the expectation that we have uh, in terms of how many people that are exposed go on to have the disease and how effective it is, then we probably will need to reach 500 to definitively show whether the stuff works or not. So, um, so, uh, doctor, are you are you when your listeners are out there? Are, are you looking for volunteers? Are there people that could volunteer to be a part of the study? Is that something that is? And then, if it is, if it is true, where would they go to find out more? So, absolutely, volunteers is exactly what we need. And uh, um, the way to find out more is uh, they can. Uh, there's an 800 number to call that uh, can help people to figure out if they are appropriate for the study, and that's 888-506-1199. And then also they can go to our website, which is covidplasmatrials.org, so V-I-D, P-L-A-S-M-A-T-R-I-L-S.org, covidplasmatrials.org, one word. Um, some of the reasons why people, I think, should uh, consider participating in the trial is one is that uh, it, it uh, may be helpful to them and that they have a 50% uh, chance of uh, getting a product that may be protective. The other thing is even if they, uh, it doesn't matter which product they get, once they're plugged into uh, the uh, trial, then they're followed by people that are experts in coronavirus and can get them the kind of testing that they may need uh, right away. For example, I have a uh, person who was in the trial, and um, uh, then he uh, had a whole bunch of questions about coronavirus. And just because right. he did in his trial, then we can answer all those, and we can get him tested when he developed symptoms, right. which ended up not being coronavirus. 
Good. Okay. Well, listen, I've got to run because I run out of time, but I'll put it up on social media. Thank you. And I think our listeners should take a look at that. It's a good one. It let me either be good for the person or good for just the country. So thanks very much, uh, doctor. And we'll put it all up on social media. I got to run. It's Ed Martin here on a Pro America Report. Back in a moment. This is the Pro America Report on The Answer San Diego. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, a daily broadcast delivering a conservative pro family perspective since 1983. As an author, speaker, and the founder of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Mrs. Schlafly spent an astounding 70 years in public service, protecting and defending the Constitution, the unborn, and America's sovereignty. And now, from the archives of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, here is Phyllis Schlafly. This election season is a good time to appreciate how special, how exceptional, how superior our American system of government really is. Unlike most other nations, the United States has presidential elections at fixed times established by law, rather than at a time chosen by the politicians in power. In England, Canada, and many parliamentary systems, the political leader decides when to hold the next election. He picks a time that is most advantageous for his re-election. But in the United States, Election Day for our president is on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November in every year divisible by four. By using a fixed day, the odds are that this will be disadvantageous to the incumbent roughly 50 percent of the time. Our Constitution limits political power in another essential way. With a strict separation of powers between the legislative, executive, and judicial branches of government. In the parliamentary system in England, the leader of the executive branch is a member of parliament, and so are his cabinet members. But in the United States, there is supposed to be almost no overlap in jobs or activities of the different branches. This separation of powers gives us the checks and balances that are unique to the U.S. Constitution. Each branch, to protect its own power, acts to limit expansions by the other branches. Our founders expected the legislative branch, Congress, to be the most powerful, more powerful than the presidency and the judiciary. Unfortunately, Congress has ceded much of its power to the president and the courts. Since the president appoints justices of the Supreme Court, remember that presidential elections now carry even more significance than ever before. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. Whether it's the vision of our founding fathers, the courage of our veterans, the moral compass of Christopher Columbus, or the fortitude of presidents like Lincoln and Reagan, the truth of history should not be undercut by liberal ideology. At Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, we honor history even as we look to the future. Join us at phyllisschlafly.com. That's phyllisschlafly.com. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. Let's wrap things up with a couple of news items from over in the New York Times. Actually, one in the New York Times and one uh, reported uh, on a couple of news services, including Politico and some others. So, But first, let's talk about the New York Times. It's two weeks to go, so it's time for the silly season where you have um, uh, uh, journalists, otherwise journalists, not journalists, really, op-ed writers, one in this case, Nick Kristoff, who writes for the New York Times, 
times and is a, a dyed in the wool liberal kind of a, you know, uh, on every issue. He seems to be more liberal every day. And he it's time, though, for these op ed writers, these opinion piece writers to write this kind of ridiculous a set of columns where they say something like, here's an example of someone who shouldn't be against President Trump, but he or she is. And that means there's a lot more to follow. So in this case, the headline is she's evangelical, pro-life and voting for Biden. And then she goes into it's Billy Graham's granddaughter. And she says, oh, my gosh, this president doesn't represent her faith. Now, it I don't know who this woman is. I've never uh, I've never you know met her. But she says for most of her life, she voted Republican. But this year, she's not. Well, first of all, most of her life, who, who'd she vote for? What, what, what Democrats did she vote for? Because if you're an evangelical and a committed evangelical and a conservative, she, there are liberal evangelicals, but don't pretend that this one, because her grandfather's uh, Billy Graham, is the one who's definitive. Here's another one. Reverend John Huffman, who once was Richard Nixon's pastor, said he's voted Republican all his life, but now he's joined a group called Pro-Life Evangelicals for Biden. Now, first of all, when someone is described as someone who once was President Nixon's pastor, does that mean like he was in a church where Nixon went once? Does that mean that he went to see Nixon, uh, you know, all the time? What is it about the guy that makes him once was his pastor? Uh, you know, did he counsel him? We don't know. I mean, it's just these these facts are offered. I know these words are offered to imply to you that there's this vast movement of people. And, and again, what, show me who's in a group called pro-life evangelicals for Biden and show me how they understand the position of abortion. The most likely thing is that she, they're not an, they're not pro-life. They're not actually pro-life. There's another one, Father Greg Boyle. I think he's a Catholic. He says, I've never endorsed the candidate. He's endorsing Biden. Why? Because he works with gangs in LA and he's liberal. Uh, so pro-life is not his issue. I'm not blaming him, but that's my uh, Nick Kristoff finishes the article as if to say, look, evangelicals are falling away from Donald Trump. Isn't it amazing? Except it's typical New York Times and, and elite uh, establishment cherry picking a few people they know or have been put onto to fulfill what they want to be true. And it's just simply not true. We don't see any, anything in the data. Right, another piece that was out, this one was in Politico and a few other places. And I re- mentioned this yesterday, but it's worth putting up uh, uh, and, and giving you uh, uh, more specifics. I'll put it up on social media. And that is that the Democrats are panicking. And they're panicking because they have realized that early voting is not going their way. In other words, they're looking at the data of the people who are doing voting in person early and they're saying, um, it doesn't look like it's enough Democratic votes. In fact, it looks like they may be actually some of them just voting early, but they're the same people who would have voted on Election Day. In other words, turnout's not up. It's not making it easier to get turnout up. It's just transferring turnout to earlier in the uh, in the period, in, you know, the election cycle, which brings up a good, interesting question that someone posed to me when I brought this up on another interview. Is it possible that election day will be simpler because, you know, millions will have voted ahead of time. Could be, could be. But back to this point, you're seeing panic amongst the Democrats because things like um, here in, tw- in Michigan, to- 25% of the total Michigan votes are in and Republicans have outpaced Democrats 40.2 to 38.3. And be aware, this is early voting. 
Republicans tend to vote on the day of the election more traditionally. We'll see if it's different. I've made the argument again on some places that I think seniors are going to vote earlier because they're afraid of the COVID stuff and they don't want to necessarily be in a big uh, uh, polling place with everyone. So I, that could be a factor. We'll see. But if it's true that uh, Republicans are turning out in higher numbers than Democrats in early voting, that's not supposed to be the plan. The plan is supposed to be that the Democrats get huge numbers because they go out early and then they get huge numbers on Election Day and the turnout. And again, I'm going to say this to you one more time. If you look around, don't trust me, look around the communities you live in and say to yourself, do you see any enthusiasm for the Democrat ticket and the get out the vote that goes along with it? Do you see rallies? Do you see door knocking? Do you see lit drops? Do you see yard signs? You don't see any of that. Look, when Obama was running for president the first time, especially, it was an extraordinary movement. I didn't like any of his politics, but it was an extraordinary movement. There's nothing to see like that. And remember, we're 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 in the midst of, the, you know, people hate Trump. They hated Bush, too, by the way, and they were tired of Bush by the end of eight years. Maybe that was the difference. Could be that by the time four years from now, at the end of, of Trump's second term, whoever's running will have all the enthusiasm. But they had a lot of enthusiasm in the 2018 midterms, the Democrats did. It just doesn't seem to be there. And so what's the what? Why would it suddenly pick up in early voting or the day of the election? There's no reason to think it would. There's no reason to think it would. And again, as I mentioned earlier in the show, the polls are closing. In other words, the pollsters are starting to get honest. And suddenly it doesn't look so sure for old Joe Biden. And uh, you want to see that civil war I mentioned earlier. The civil war between the Democrats when this is over is going to be something to behold. All right. That's all we've got. Don't forget to tune in Uh, after the debate. I will be doing an hour and a half of a breakdown. We'll have special guests. We'll break down the debate. Tune in at 7.30 p.m. Right after the debate ends on The Answer San Diego, and uh, we'll break everything down. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Visit ProAmericaReport.com to get all these uh, segments and to sign up for the Daily Wink. We'll talk to you soon. Ed Martin, Pro-America Report.